0: Welcome, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly podcast of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Friday on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And if not, you are listening for free to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe and tell your friends about us. You can subscribe at the podcast. Today, I'm in my Miami closet studio, and I am joined by my colleague, the legal eagle, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. Good morning, Andrea.
1: Good morning, Gracie. I'm not in a closet. She's actually in a really (laughs) nice nice
0: (laughs) studio with our beautiful guests. And um, so she's in D.C., I'm in Miami, and we have a guest who has come all the way from Chicago to see us, and her name is Mary Fiorito, She's an attorney and the Cardinal Francis George Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. And she specializes in human life issues and issues related to women and the Catholic Church. And before I say hello to Mary, I'd like to say that Mary and I are Twitter friends. And we we actually get into these long, complicated discussions with strange strangers Mm -hmm. on Twitter that have done me a lot of good. They've really illuminated for me. The way people, um, the way people confuse certain issues, complicated issues uh, about the dignity of life, and and I love listening, I love reading the way that Mary uh, interacts with people in such a respectful way, and always, you know, sort of drilling down to the the logical conclusion and, and finding those those defects in people's logical um, approach. Gracie, so, yeah, I've been you following you so,
1: for the last month. Since I started on Twitter, it's exhausting. Yes.
2: To follow you. But, you know, she always comes. What I love about Gracie is that she has such, you know, incredible knowledge of the medical pieces of the abortion debate and is willing to sort of be out there. There's not a lot of doctors, I think, who have the time or the inclination for a variety of different reasons to be there in that public forum, but it's really important and kind of frightening to me the number of people, like the kind of scary types who will, I know, have doxed her and tried to find out details about her medical practice and what kind of things she does and doesn't do um, in an attempt to discredit her. But she always comes back with the medical facts. And I think, you know, it, it, it does make they wouldn't come back so often and with such vitriol mm. if it wasn't if bothering them. The <laughs> right. Right. It'd be a lot well, easier it's a, to is it You know, Twitter them, so. Twitter
0: is a crazy place. It's a, I, I think it's a very a raw place where people are really uh, being very frank. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the frankness is very disturbing and very... But I think it's a very good place also to understand the mentality of people who aren't well-informed. And many of them are just trying to be... trying to be honest and frank.
2: Well, you and, know what was conflict. interesting in the in the very last exchange we had um, between a woman, it began when a woman had, um, who calls herself Dragon Blaze, had put up a number of different pictures of severely disabled children, you know, immediately following their birth, some with anencephaly and others with conditions, Gracie, Gracie you, might, you might know better, they uh, were not familiar to me, but Um, As if to say, because of the severity of their disability, they deserve to be killed. It was rather chilling. And so that became a very long conversation. But to me, it was so interesting how quickly those, and there were about five or six people, uh, four of the five anonymous, the other used his name, Uh, but how quickly they went to attacking the Catholic Church, almost instantly. So they had clearly figured out what religion we were. We never mention I never mention religion when I'm talking about abortion, I mean, unless I'm talking in a Catholic Church. But I never mention it. And to me, it's always so funny that the topic immediately goes to A, our faith, and then B, uh, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church priest abuse issue. And as disgraceful as that is, it has nothing to do with the abortion issue. But immediately, as if that discredits everything that we have to say, you know, about about, uh, about abortion. Well, we're really hoping in in this podcast and in this
1: episode in particular with Mary, who's such a great uh, expert and such a witty <laughs> guest to have on, is to have a longer conversation so that we're not just being reflexive, so that we're not just being um, three or four sentences before you do a quick hashtag, but we really can drill a little bit, deeper and go a little bit more profound on on what's going on and have these conversations that will allow us to then come up with as most um, targeted answers to
0: some of the the fallacies out there. So Andrea, laying the foundation for this conversation, I think it's important to say, to point out that Mary is visiting us from Chicago. She's visiting us from a state that has just passed uh, a very expansive abortion law that pretty much deregulates abortion. Uh, from all sorts of common sense um, um, restrictions around the, around the safety of the mother and, and other other things like that. So complete deregulation there. It's following the same footsteps as uh, New York, Rhode Island, I think Vermont, and and um, so we need to talk about that. And yes, and also drill down to these these arguments that we've, we've been having on Twitter with people, so that we understand what late term abortion really is. Who's having them, and for what purposes? Because there's a lot of misinformation out there.
2: Yeah, uh, there's a lot to unpack. So, um, so yeah, you're right. As, as I think many people would probably know from your um, your regular, uh, just kind of consumption of the news, um, about six months ago, New York, the state of New York, signed in an extremely uh, progressive, as they would like to say, abortion mm-hmm. bill into law. Governor Cuomo signed it. They lit up a number of the state buildings in pink to celebrate. You know the the expansion yeah, of abortion, the girl uh, right? Exactly. Yeah, it was it was really horrific, and Governor Cuomo got into it a little bit in, in public with Cardinal Dolan in New York City, and um, yeah, it was very ugly. And after seeing that, the governor of Illinois said, "Wait, hold my beer. We're going to do something more." <laughs> and so off <laughs> they did. And so now Illinois has even hit, he he stated on the Roe versus Wade anniversary back in January. The state of Illinois will have the most progressive, that's the word he used, abortion uh, law in the United States of America. He said, that is my goal. I intend to keep it. And for the next five months, it was a, it was a very difficult uh, battle. The abortion lobby in Illinois is extremely well-funded. Mm-hmm. Uh, governor Pritzker, who is the governor of Illinois, is uh, part of the, the, the very wealthy uh, Pritzker family, um, very politically active. They own the Hyatt Hotel chain. Um, So they literally, you know, a million dollars is a restaurant tip for for one of the Priskers. Um, They have tons of money with which to do the kinds of things they want to do. Um, Although, you know, what was interesting is that they didn't do very much to try to hide the extreme nature of the bill. They lied quite frequently and said, you know, on, on the books in Illinois up until uh, up until now, the 1975 Abortion Control Act had, had technically been on the books, but about 95% of it was permanently enjoined, meaning it couldn't be enforced. One of the provisions that had been permanently enjoined was spousal consent, that your spouse had to give your uh, consent if a couple was married prior to an abortion. Now, spousal consent is not the law anywhere, as Andrea could point out, nowhere. <laughs> and, they, and after the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, mm-hmm. which threw out even parental or spousal notice, Spousal notice isn't even the law, any place in the land. But they kept talking about the need to have this new abortion law to, over, to overturn uh, the spousal consent, which wasn't wasn't in effect, would never even be in effect. It was never, nobody was ever it, going it, no, to. No, it was permanently enjoined. So that that was the talking point that they kept bringing up. Every story the Chicago Tribune ran this. Uh, not only in the paper but on social media sites that they run over and over again. And we kept saying, no, what this bill is going to do is it, it's going to remove the requirements uh, that require two doctors to be present at a third trimester abortion, that any action that was taken in ending a pregnancy – had to be done in in the best possible way to maintain the child's life, right? So, if you had to end the pregnancy, that didn't mean you ended the life of the child. You ended the pregnancy, and whatever. So, ever, for instance, if a woman uh, was had preeclampsia,
0: for instance, had to correct. have the pregnancy ended right away for her health. Correct. It didn't.
2: It didn't. It, no, you it was wouldn't. Supposed to you not wouldn't involve do the, the, direct yeah, killing the third. The the th- correct, and you wouldn't do the third day insert the laminaria procedure to expand the cervix so that you could deliver the child because preeclampsia requires you to end that pregnancy immediately. To you, you have to do an immediate C-section, or that woman is going to die. Exactly, she's not going to. She's right. not going to last the three days. So, right. um, so no. So they removed that requirement, which is essentially then legalized abortion up until the moment of birth for elective reasons. Now, we already have clinics in Illinois, freestanding for-profit clinics in both Chicago and downstate Illinois that openly advertise, as well as some of our Planned Parenthood clinics, up to 23 weeks, six days, so essentially the six-month mark, Uh, yet we have neonatal intensive care units where we have uh, babies being saved at the Mm -hmm. end of the 21st week and into the 22nd week, so certainly past what uh, neonatologists would tell you would be viability.
1: Mary, I was really um, struck, and this isn't unique, sadly, to Illinois, but in this new Reproductive Health Act, um, any kind of regulation of abortion clinics has been thrown out the window. The
2: health and and safety uh, regulations are gone.
1: Well, and it it strikes me, earlier this week, one of my little girls had her tonsils out at Mm -hmm. an ambulatory pediatric surgical center. And I had to sign, you know, fifty pages right. of waivers. And I was there. <laughs> and when she woke and up, try,
0: and just try to have a friend of yours drop her off.
1: Yeah, no, surgery. but
2: but without but, you knowing about it. Well, yeah. and how and, that and that
1: was the the amazing thing. And there were there were anesthesiologists, there were nurses, there were doctors, there were doctors with privileges at Children's Hospital in
2: case anything went on. And where, where uh, they would have to transfer her to a hospital. And I, you know, and I was privileges. still a
1: mess. Yeah. I was still nervous and anxious and praying, and please let let sweet little Teresa come out of this okay. And when she came out of it, all okay. She needed me, and I comforted her and held her. And I thought about um, what's going on with these women, many young, many young underage women, mm-hmm. um, girls, and and they're going into places now where you don't even need to be a doctor, right. And
0: you don't even need to be a nurse; you might just be a healthcare. care you don't even
2: need no. That, you don't so, even need to
0: have a ramp, a ramp leading up to the front door, so that you can carry, so right. that the rescue can bring
2: in a wheeled gurney and what, in and cases what, of an of an emergency. So, right. In addition to the health and safety uh, regulations being removed, they also removed the necessity of a coroner's report in case a woman dies hmm. during an abortion procedure at a really? clinic. Really? Yes. That do, and so There'll I, be no traces of no. any. And you know, we had a couple of years ago, a beautiful young African American woman named Tanya Reeves who died uh, during a second trimester abortion at uh, Planned Parenthood in one of Chicago's nicer neighborhoods on Michigan Avenue. She, uh, they uh, perforated her uterus. Hmm. According to the, uh, there was a two million dollar settlement against Planned Parenthood. They waited five hours to call the ambulance. Oh. She hemorrhaged for five hours before nine one one was called. Um, now, in Tanya Reeves' death, there happened to be a coroner who came in because that was mandated by the law. Um, probably had a large part to do in the in the size of the settlement. Mm. Um, and there is even what was so interesting about this: there was even a coroner who's one of our state representatives who spoke against this law on the floor and said, "You have to keep. You don't understand what you're doing. You've got to keep the, the regulation, the coroner's regulation, and you have to." No, it that's a really the amazing. And they voted for it anyway. Chicago guys. Yeah, you know, it's amazing
0: yeah. to me because. Uh, it, we know, we know that plant, we know that clinic, abortion clinics are, are famous for being underregulated. Right. Well, we just closed of one politi- two two because years ago. they're a political yep. football.
2: Yeah, uh, two years ago in Rockford, Illinois, uh, it was discovered that one clinic during one of these regular health and safety inspections was re- reusing instruments without sterilizing yeah. them. Uh, women were getting infected. Women going back to their OBs with infections. Uh, so that that clinic just two years ago was shut down. What happens? You know, what happens now to those women?
1: Well, we, we speak a lot about, like, the regulation by the state of industry, and, and we know what's in our food, and there are all sorts of regulations over who's cutting your hair or doing your eyebrows. And there's no oversight, it seems like, especially not in, in Illinois, over something so um, serious. Right. And,
2: and, and where so much can go wrong. Yeah. And, Gracie, maybe... Well, so much can, goes yeah. wrong well, by, by its purpose right. in general. Right. But, you know, if... If women's health and well-being is actually something that's at the heart of the intent of this law, they have they have really opened up a Pandora's box of possible harms. Um, I, I think I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the case of Kermit Gosnell. All you you don't even have you know this is one thing when we were in that Twitter conversation, I kept bringing this up to our some of our opponents, Gracie, and I kept saying. Here's the grand jury report. All you have to do—don't take my word for it. Take the grand jury report, which was compiled by a uh, a district attorney who was on the—he ran as a pro-choice candidate. This was not a pro-life man who goes into detail about how the nail salons in uh, Philadelphia were more carefully inspected than Kermit Gosnell's abortion clinic ever was, and moreover. That the National Abortion Federation, to its credit, he applied for membership in the National Abortion Federation, which is like a trade association uh, for yeah. private for-profit abortion clinics. And to their credit, they they rejected his application because they went to see his clinic and they saw how filthy it was. But they never reported him. Hmm. They never. You know, I've been a medical,
0: him. I've been a medical director of of medical facilities for many years, for twenty years or so since I finished my residency and. We do radiology in these facilities. We do not insert any surgical instruments into anybody. That's all everything we do is very safe and we have more regulations and more inspections
2: than your average abortion clinic. Yeah. Well, I mean, just going to get like my nails done in Chicago. We have a, a, there's a huge Polish population in Chicago for those of you not familiar with it. More, there are more Poles that live in um Chicago than live in all of Warsaw. So there's a little there's a little fun fact for you. That's really? why that's why John Paul II made Chicago his first stop when he came to the United States. But I digress. But anyway, there's a lot of these little Polish salons. And the the, the same girl from, from Krakow has been doing my nails for twenty years and she was just telling me what she has to go through just to get certified and how you know, I was just asking her about what she does what she does with her instruments after she touches my nails. She said, Oh, I have to mm-hmm. And she said if a state inspector came in here to get her nails done and I didn't do this the right way, I'd lose my license. And that's well, and you know, then, and, and we don't we
1: don't want people to get fungus and oh and yeah gross things. with a finger, sure, yeah. But, but what's amazing is um, there should be outrage that that women, you know, even if even if you're on the pro-choice side of things, mm-hmm. women should be treated with care mm-hmm. and not with disregard and right. not with dirty instruments and not with no one to call in case. They're in in grave danger, right?
0: But you know, it makes total sense. If if the reason you open your clinic is to eliminate the lives of children, how how careful can you possibly want to be about the lives of women? Right. These, this this it goes. It's in the same box. It's in right. that same mentality, right? Right. These aren't health. These aren't these aren't uh, practitioners of medicine. Right. I mean, this your bottom insurance. line is money.
2: Your bottom line is money. It's and, always money, and that is sort of the most frightening thing. Is the is the sort of um, assembly line way in which patients who come in are treated and I think anyone who's come out of the abortion industry and and we're mm-hmm. so blessed God is so good and so merciful he has brought so many people from Dr. Anthony Levitino to Abby Johnson to you know Carol Everett and and others down the line who really I think very heroically spoke about the years that they they did this and they all speak of that particular aspect of it don't they that 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 um, there was that profit was the primary motive. They, you know, helping women, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, really, yeah. it was, as I think who was, it was um, a doctor who, who talked about how she could make $300 a day um, Three hundred dollars every fifteen minutes in cash under the table. She said she had her law school—sorry, her her uh, medical school loans paid off within two years mm-hmm. during abortions for those but first for two years. Cost? But what that, well, she said the minute she was done, when her loans were gone, she got out of it. She said I couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. But she said the money was so good, I just couldn't turn it down.
0: You know, I'm you know something. Part of I'm sorry, the, um, something I said on. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Andrea.
1: No, I was just going to say I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, not just the kind of macro, but looking at the micro in, in, in Lifting any kind of regulation, especially on, on the timing of a woman 's pregnancy and and what it looks like and what you think might be going on now in Illinois with these up to the moment of birth. Mm-hmm. Um, Kind of free-for-all that's happening for these abortionists.
2: Well, the the, the other uh, component of this that's important for your listeners uh, from out of state to understand is that Illinois already had, signed last year, um, an expansion of our publicly funded abortion law. So Illinois will pay for mm. any Medicaid recipient and any um, uh, Illinois state of employee, employee gets a free abortion. Now, under what's called presumptive eligibility for Medicaid, If you're a girl from Wisconsin or Indiana, um, I remember some of our bigger abortion clinics, Planned Parenthood's big mega center is in a town called Aurora, Illinois, um, but which is probably 35 minutes from the Wisconsin border, uh, 40 minutes the other way from the Indiana border, uh, 45 minutes the other way from the Iowa border, all of which have uh, either parental notice or uh, parental consent laws. They can come and get their abortions not only without their parents knowing. They can get them for free. Mm-hmm. All they have so, to say is Presum- presumably I'm eligible for Medicaid in the state where I'm from. But oh gosh, I don't have my papers, and and the the clinic can provide the the abortion for free and reimburse and, and be and be reimbursed exactly.
0: So Illinois taxpayers are pref- are paying for abortions from for. Poor young women from all around. Correct. From every state. Correct. And that's why, women.
2: you know, it was interesting. I just gave the keynote at Wisconsin Right to Life about six months ago, and they had a lovely PowerPoint presentation where they were showing how their abortion numbers have dropped to like 7,000 a year.
0: Well, we'll be right back with Mary Fiorito after the break, and we'll keep on discussing this super interesting topic. Welcome back, friends. I'm your host, Dr. Gracie Christie, joined in studio by my colleague, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, and our friend, Mary Fiorito. And she is an attorney and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We're talking about uh, Illinois' new, uh, very expensive uh, abortion law that allows abortion right up until the moment of birth. And we're trying to drill down a little deeper into that. I thought it it would be it would be good to talk about. so in the earlier segment, we were talking about um, our Twitter conversations that we have with all sorts of people, and I think Mary, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that what we what I understand from these conversations with people who reflexively support abortion is that they do believe very strongly that third trimester or late pregnancy abortions are always done because of a severe or fatal fetal anomaly. And this is a belief that I've encountered over and over and over again. And I uh, I try to fight back and you do too. And and we encounter a lot of disbelief. They really believe that women only abort late trimester babies because of a fetal
2: Anomaly. Correct. Yeah, and and that is, you know, if you'll excuse the use of the word, one of the greatest misconceptions about post viability abortions that happens. Um, however, factually, it, it's just false. Now, are some abortions done when uh, there there is a uh, you know adverse prenatal diagnosis that shows that the child will have a, um, a, a complication that will not make long term life compatible? Sure, that's that's absolutely the case in some cases. However, Guttmacher, the Guttmacher Institute, which is the former research arm of Planned Parenthood, has in one of its own studies of late-term abortions um, indicators that women who choose late-term abortions do so for pretty much the same reasons that women choose earlier abortions. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Primary among them, the woman's age. She is young. It takes her a while to get together the money she needs for the abortion. Uh, The boyfriend bails on her halfway through the pregnancy. Uh, she, you know, she changes her mind, she uses drugs halfway through the pregnancy, and then is afraid she's going to have, you know, a disabled or deformed child. Um, There's a variety of different reasons that have nothing to do with either maternal health or fetal anomaly. And it's, it's very distressing to see the secular media sort of playing into this Um, into this idea that that people have gotten in their heads that this is the reason for late-term abortions. This is why they have to exist when it is not at all the case. And in fact, if you look, if you just Google, where can I get a late-term abortion, you'll come up with abortion clinics like Warren Hearn's clinic in Boulder, Colorado. You'll come up with the Hope Clinic in Illinois, where they very clearly say, you know, um, we do do late-term abortions for both Fetal indications and for other reasons, mm. for other reasons. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very clear about the fact. I mean, they advertise this openly, you know, online in their clinics. So mm-hmm. um, and then live action and other groups have gone undercover to certain clinics that do late term abortions and say, you know, do I have to have a reason? And the person answering the phone says no. And, you know, at 27 weeks, it's going to cost you three thousand dollars. This is going to go up a thousand dollars for every week that you wait. Uh, Dr. Anthony Levitino uses some of that information. He's a former abortion provider in his presentations. So it's just simply not the case. Mary, we had um, uh, recently a great
1: conversation with Gloria Purvis and with Carter Sneed about um, efforts to try to at least protect uh, our country and states against selective abortions, uh, you know, geared towards the race or the gender or the... The the specific disability. Disability of the child. And and it's very funny that, you know, just uh, 10 years ago... 15 years ago, there was a common understanding that eugenics was not going to be driving these horrible decisions Mm -hmm. and now it seems to be seeping in. One of the things though I wanted to talk a little bit about, and you've written on in in a beautiful way, and I think we all kind of have these lovely stories, is when things are difficult in the later stage, there is always hope. Mm -hmm. And I was reflecting my first boy was born super premature, beautiful little guy and when we were in the NICU, I remember seeing a little baby who was uh, born, I think, at like 26 or 27 weeks, tiny little little nugget. And, and her parents were never there, and I always just kind of thought, oh, what a shame. And then as the weeks passed on, eventually a woman came and she was wheeled in, and she um, was the mom, and she was diagnosed during her pregnancy of having a brain tumor. Oh. But the beautiful thing is she, in consultation with her doctors and the neonatal doctors, were able to get the baby um, old enough right. to be born uh, successfully and without too many challenges and then attend to her health care needs. Right. And it was this you great know, extended network of mm-hmm, support for right. life.
0: Andrea, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because this is another mistaken assumption that's really being uh, perpetrated by the media really being pushed by the media is that uh, the only the only thing you can do for a woman whose pregnancy has to be ended because of preeclampsia or she has a brain tumor, or she needs radiation or chemotherapy immediately to save her life is to abort. And people really believe that out there. Mm-hmm. They do not realize that to terminate a pregnancy means two different things. It means to deliver a live baby or to deliver a dead baby. Right. There's two separate paths that you can take at that point. And both of them. For the mother have the same solution or the same solution in in other words physically the mother ends her pregnancy now psychologically spiritually morally delivering a dead baby killing the baby and delivering a dead baby is a very different path from delivering a live baby and letting the baby have a chance uh in the neonatal icu
2: um, now that we have so many wonderful
0: resources right. for young babies. And
2: especially now, you know, you can have injections that can be given to the mom in advance if you know you're going to have to do a preterm delivery that mature the lungs much mm-hmm. more quickly. I, I had I had the same condition with my first pregnancy that St. Gianna Bredamola had, and so mm-hmm. I had two very large fibroid tumors in my uterus, and they already said, you know, we're going to try to get you to 32 weeks, you know. Uh, they gave me the, the steroid injections right away so that her lungs were – I mean, she spent maybe – my daughter spent maybe three or four days in the NICU, you know, after a birth at 30, 33. Yeah. I mean, and that's – well, that's how we're, – we're very blessed, right? We have uh, wonderful neonatal care in the Chicago area. Um, and I had another friend who had Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Same thing. They got her to, I think, 34 weeks, and then she started her chemo, everything. I mean, there are so many different options that don't result in having to kill the child directly. But, you know, in states where there are wrongful birth statutes, where doctors can be sued by parents if the child is born with a disability that they haven't warned, warned with scare codes around it, the, the parents about it in, in advance, I think that does put extra pressure on doctors who fear being sued. And that's about 28 no, states. No, that's, you're, that's yeah. a very...
0: There's, I think, there's six, 19 states that allow wrongful life suits. Mm-hmm. I was threatened with a lawsuit one time for a baby that was born with a cleft lip,
2: if you can believe it. Well, a
0: wrongful life suit for a little girl with a cleft lip.
2: Right. Mm. It's right. So it's you know it's, so you yeah. understand that it's it's a real thing uh, for for practicing doctors. But um, but then there's there's another aspect of of these kinds of cases that, as as Andrea mentioned, I have written quite a bit about, and that's something called perinatal hospice. And that was, I was sensitized to myself. I have a friend who was diagnosed, she she was carrying twins, a boy and a girl, and her daughter was diagnosed with a very rare form of spina bifida where she had an entire brain, but it was completely outside of the skull. Mm -hmm. And she was just featured on uh, the front page of the New York Times, above the fold, in a beautiful color picture of her just last Sunday, um, talking about, she has remained a pro-life Democrat her entire life. She's from a family of 12 kids from Pittsburgh. And she's just, you know, she just said, I don't think I could ever join the Republican Party. So it was all about how people in that you wouldn't expect have pro-life views. But but she uh, she was actually threatened is probably too strong, but definitely pressured to end the pregnancy of her daughter by selective reduction. She was told she was endangering her son's life Hmm. if she didn't destroy her daughter. She refused. She said, you better come up with something else because I'm not doing it. Uh, Went on bed rest, delivered at 36 weeks. Um, her daughter lived six hours, but the beautiful part of this, you know, they they had her baptized, and so there was a mass of the angels for her two days later at our parish. And when they got home, I mean, this is how merciful God is. The day they they got home from the the mass and the little reception afterwards, and there was a letter from the Illinois Organ Registration. Um, organization that gave her the names of the two infant girls her daughter's heart valve had saved. So two little girls who would have perished are now alive. And she said, you know, we didn't. And then she said, people have accused her of saying things like, you know, you're you're just, a, uh, you know, your daughter was just used to harvest organs. And -hmm. and she said, what a horrible way to refer to my child, We made as a bag of organs. Right. Well, she said we made the most life affirming decision for her Mm -hmm. every step along the way. She died in her father's arms, Mm -hmm. she died peacefully, she was baptized. All of her grandparents held her. We have a little picture with her next to her brother who went on to play football at Carnegie Mellon and graduated at the top of his class and didn't die. You know, I mean, Hmm. so it's – but I remember when I was pregnant with my eldest daughter, the the frightening things that your doctors can tell you sometimes. And if I hadn't been educated and staunchly pro-life and all of that – I might have heard what she was saying as well as she said to me, interrupting the pregnancy is always an option. And I said, well, that's not an option for me, so you better come up with something else, and she did. Mm -hmm. But I could see how a woman who is frightened, who maybe doesn't have good health insurance, who doesn't have a supportive spouse, might hear that as, my doctor said I have to have an abortion. Does that make sense? So I think sometimes you're dealing with... And and you and I have encountered that on Twitter, right, with women who are so wounded. I, my child would have died in pain if I hadn't had an abortion, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we had that one woman who kept coming back at us, Gracie, um, during That's that right. entire exchange. And But the beautiful part about neonatal um, hospice, prenatal, perinatal hospice, is that there is adequate pain control. And yes. the specialists in this say, you know, there is no fetal pain that we cannot control um, to keep the child comfortable to keep, you know, the child without suffering and to let the jail you know, as one of them, Dr. Elvira Paravicini, who's kind of the nation's leading expert she practices at Columbia, said, I like to follow the child. I tell the parents, let's see what the child tells us mm-hmm. when he or she is born. We follow the child. And she had a little boy, she said, who did have Down syndrome, but she said all of the other horrible an- yeah. anomalies we were told he had, he didn't have. Yeah. After mm-hmm. after he was assessed, after he was born. And, he's, and she showed a picture of him. He's this beautiful little five-year-old kid in kindergarten now. He's mainstreamed. And he's beautiful. And she said, you know, his parents were so grateful they didn't terminate him.
1: Well, and it's it's something really wonderful when you look at these studies of little preemies and neonatals. And that not only... Are is is medical advancements incredible in helping support them and and their development and growth if they are able to continue to live beyond uh, a short period of time? But the connection that they have with the people who love them and the people around them is Mm -hmm. it it goes both ways, right? And the impact that they they recognize, like when mom comes near a neonatal, the the little babies. Their heart rates right. increase, yeah. and and for mom to see their little baby and be able to hold their little baby for however long that baby is here
2: on earth is a gift, right? And to know some, that you, you know, you, you as my friend said, I never lost. She said we were very sad, we were desperately sad, but I never not lost a night's sleep about what we did. Yeah. You know,
0: you know, some children, some children are born only to die very soon after birth, and this is a sad reality of our of our human condition, of of our biology. Some children don't have the ability to live much longer after birth, but that the fact that that's true uh, doesn't mean that they ought to have their lives ended. By right, you violence. don't have to
2: help a dying child die. You exactly. don't have to kill an already dying child. There, there's no point in that. And you know what's interesting? One of the methods, Gracie, that, that's often referenced is that the, the child's heart is stopped through an injection. Um, in the heart, which stops the heartbeat, and then you deliver, you go into labor, and you deliver a dead child. Mm. And I was interviewing; this was so interesting. A deacon who's a retired veterinarian. This, and I never knew this all the years. And he was telling me, he said, "Do you know I am ethically prohibited from doing that to an animal unless it is comatose no. or I've sedated it?" He said because I have to go through the pleural cavities, and he said it would cause the animal excruciating pain. He uh, he, he brought so this up treat, to me. We treat animals better, right? and we don't give anesthesia to these babies before we go through... I mean, Gracie, you know better. Please correct me because I don't want to no, pla- no, play a doctor no, no, here on no the radio. Anesthesia. But he, was, no telli- but the he was telling me the, the, the different cavities that you have to go through to get that injection into the heart. So he said, if you think this is some kind of sweet little painless way to put the baby to sleep, he said, it's not. He said, I can't do it it's to brutal. a dog. He said, I'd lose my license mm. if I did that to a dog unless it was comatose or I sedated it. And, you know, I had a nephew born at 22 weeks, two years ago uh, at Loyola's Medical Center in Maywood, which has one of the nation's best NICUs. And anytime time he was, anything was done to him, from 22 weeks on, he was given intramuscular injections of fentanyl because you couldn't touch him because of his skin being so thin, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And you think we're doing elective abortions, so healthy mom, healthy baby, freestanding clinics, mm-hmm. not a hospital. We're doing abortions on those babies with no anesthesia whatsoever. Yeah,
0: it's torture and even even if the baby even if the baby was uh eliminated without any pain at all there is still right. the moral repugnance of the act
2: right. the fact exactly. that
0: a mother and a father sometimes and a, and a doctor and a nurse all participated in the elimination of a vulnerable child right there was something mary that
1: you mentioned in talking about your friend's experience and the ability to not only have your, her child delivered but also baptize the child and i think sometimes we can kind of only see this at the natural plane, right? Mm-hmm. Whether a baby's going to survive, how long the baby's going to survive, what's the best um, way to deal with that situation. But when we look at it with a supernatural perspective mm-hmm. and the chance that a parent or parents have to give that child kind of uh, a oneness and, and to make that their child a child of God as well through baptism mm-hmm. is is quite a beautiful
2: gift right. that must offer not closure but consolation? Tremendous and that's that's exactly the adjective she uses. Tremendous consolation and the number of times she has said she has felt Mary Bernadette's presence or felt her intercession or other people mm. in their family who have asked for her intercession have felt her intercession um, I mean when she was on the front page of the New York Times last week uh, you know she said well there's Mary Bernadette at work again she said yeah. she has not stopped working <laughs> since the minute she <laughs> left for heaven and, and, and no, I, I believe it I, and I don't think I that's just it. some like you know little pla- you know panacea she's using to, to keep herself feeling better about it she, she has actually had moments where she has felt her daughter interceding for their family
0: I I would venture to say that most Americans don't even, they don't, they've never heard the term perinatal hospice.
2: Correct, right. And and many women who are presented with an adverse prenatal diagnosis are not even told about it. In fact, my friend, uh, who I've mentioned here, had testified in front of Congress on the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, and when she got a woman, who had testified before her, had had the partial birth procedure. Of course, you know, Nayrol managed to find somebody whose mother worked at Catholic Charities, you know, and Mm. she went on about sobbing and how we would have done anything to save our child, and this was the only option we had. And then my friend got up and gave her testimony and talked about the infant organ donation, and this woman, I get tears in my eyes every time, this woman turned to her and said, no one told me about that. She said, no one told us. She said, I didn't know anything about that. And the woman, what, and the it, it was, she said, my friend was just saying, she, she said, I could, I, I didn't know what to, like, I didn't know what to say to her. And I just kept saying, I'm so sorry. I'm yeah. so sorry. No one ever told you. And this is a and, terrible burden it is. for a, man,
0: a woman, a, a father and a mother to carry with them for the rest of their lives. Right. That they were active in the death of their child. Right. That they, and that again, they, you know, I was like to, to it and paid, out, and paid well, for it
2: correct. But like with this woman, where is their moral culpability? If they, were, if they were frightened into doing it, if they were coerced into doing it, if they were not told about other options, you know, I, I, I haven't yeah, been no, around. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not for us culp- to – Well, to <laughs> the moral culpability is – now, there are some who just say – you know, I remember one woman being interviewed in the Tribune who said I didn't her, – her child would have been in a wheelchair, but she said, she said I didn't want a disabled child. Huh. She said, I just, you know, and she was that frank about it. So I'm not excusing everyone who makes this choice because I think some people are doing it with a fully informed conscience, but there are many who aren't. And that that's why just to have as many people as possible know about perinatal hospice and about that as an option if you do get an adverse diagnosis, um, I think that... And Mary,
0: that, what about, I, I know you've spoken about this before, or you, you mentioned it on Twitter about the outcomes for, for mothers and fathers oh, who chosen you. perinatal Oh, thank you. Thank you, Gracie, for, for
2: bringing that up. It's, it's not just a benefit to the child. The studies have shown, and there have been multiple studies in peer-reviewed medical journals, that have shown that the women who opt for perinatal hospice over termination do far better on every psychological scale that they can measure Two, three, five years down the line. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are eons ahead of their sisters who have the termination. Um, they do better psychologically. They do better emotionally. Um, they, they, when surveyed, 93% of them say, I, if I'm diagnosed with another child with a disability, I will do the same thing again. Mm-hmm. I will not terminate. I will, do, I will choose perinatal hospice.
1: Well, it's, it's an interesting way to think about perinatal hospice, hospice doesn't pit the mother against her child.
2: Right. Your child but, is not your enemy, right? Yeah, and,
1: and and allows yeah, and allows the family to both know each other, right, and and kind of say hello and goodbye and share moments of, of great joy with one another.
2: And and one of the beautiful things that Dr. Pervicini talks about with her patients when there are older siblings. The older siblings do so much better if they Mm. see their if their child if their if the pregnancy doesn't just mysteriously disappear and Uh that older siblings are part of that of that you know farewell. It's it does better for them. That's beautiful.
0: You know, know, we try to protect our children sometimes, but we're we're doing the opposite, right? It's good to express to show them,
2: right? The the good and bad parts of life. life. Yeah, and there is a beautiful way to handle everything with grace. Correct. Yes,
0: Mary, the the time has flown too fast. We thank you so much for joining us on Conversations
2: with Consequences. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was great, Mary. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at the Catholic Association.org. So, Andrea and I decided this morning, we talked it over and we picked out two excellent clips from this week's uh, media roundup. And the first one is about a very important um, thing that's going on that just happened, which is the firing of Dr. Liana Wen from, uh, from being president of Planned Parenthood. She's only been president for a little over eight months, so she was terminated in her eighth month of of tenure at Planned Parenthood. That's a bad joke. So, the first article is from Grace. the New York Times. <laughs> Go ahead. Andrea.
3: No, Gracie, I was going to just say it's uh, the the articles that are in, unfolding really are showing um, are amazing, and the fact that that we found in the New York Times. Um, kind of a full expose of the underbelly of this ugly organization that's Planned Parenthood and their internal decision-making is really surprising. Uh, and that and they themselves report that the Planned Parenthood board doesn't care about women's health. What they want is abortion advocacy. The more political, the better.
0: So the article is called Planned Parenthood's Struggle, Is It a Service or an Advocate? It's in the New York Times on July, from July 18th. On the first page, I think, page A1. Is that the first? I think that's the first page on the, on the, on the printed page. But um, yes, it's very interesting because the article describes this long struggle since they brought Dr. Wen on board because she wanted to repaint abortion, well, Planned Parenthood's role in the United States as a basic healthcare organization of which abortion was just one, another thing on the menu. But Planned Parenthood doesn't see it the same way. They don't see themselves as a healthcare organization. They see themselves as an abortion rights advocate. So they're doubling down on this. They got rid of Dr. Wen. And I think it's really interesting the way that we as taxpayers are are told that we have to support Planned Parenthood, which we do to the tune of over half a billion dollars a year, billion with a B. Uh, But what we're really doing is supporting with our tax dollars a political lobbying organization, which doesn't make any sense.
3: Exactly. I think it's a great opportunity for everybody that's been donning a pink T-shirt, Planned Parenthood pink T-shirt, to throw it in the trash. <laughs> There's a lot of other great things that we can do. It's always do a good day to throw your pink T-shirt. Women.
0: It's to always a great your pink, day. Your
3: Planned Parenthood pink T-shirt in the trash.
0: Yeah, you know, this is not an organization that cares about women in the least. They care about their bottom line. They care that, they're, that the politicians who funnel money to them, are being elected, that's what they care about. And and at the end of the day, their lack of caring results in over 300,000 abortions a year in the United States and lots of broken hearts. Well, what a travesty. Well, the next article that we picked out is about another important thing that's happening this week, which is a ministerial that's going on in Washington. The article is from the Wall Street Journal from July 18th. It's in the clips from, today, from July 18th. And it's called Pompeo Gets Religion, A New International Alliance to Promote the First Freedom. So this is about a state department holding its second ministerial to advance religious freedom all across the globe. And today, on Thursday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will announce a new International Religious Freedom Alliance. And its mission will be to find ways to promote the most basic of human rights and hold abusers accountable.
3: Well, and, and this ministerial, like you said, is the second um, time that the State Department has hosted it. Last year was the inaugural ministerial. It's a really great opportunity for patriotism and to be proud of America and our leadership in defending religious freedom, both here in the U.S. as our first freedom and abroad with our other um, allies in the world. And this alliance takes the ministerial that brought diplomats study and understand the importance and the benefit of religious freedom um, in their own countries and regionally, and really brings together a political alliance behind this important issue. I think it's wonderful. It's a nonpartisan issue. And it's a great opportunity to see um, America as the beacon of light that we've always been on this issue.
0: Here's a great line about the alliance from the article. Think of it as a credible version of the UN Human Rights Council without human rights abusers like Cuba and China. I think that's Very to the point. We need a good alliance. We need a good alliance across the world on on this this issue of religious freedom, which is our first freedom. So I just want to put in a plug for my own article in Angelus News. It's uh, on the clips from the 17th, and it's about adoption, my adoption of our fifth child from China. And uh, I do recommend it. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry and do look up his daily homily, written in audio, on his website, CatholicPreaching.com.
4: Hi, everyone. It's Father Roger Landry, and let's turn together to the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. It's one of the more famous conversations Jesus had in the gospel. When he goes over to his friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, is out. there's a conversation with the two sisters about what's really important in life. It's a key conversation for us as we determine our own priorities and the choices that we make. A few years ago, there was a poll of American women that revealed that their greatest desires for more time. There's not enough time in a day, they said, to accomplish all of the things they have to do, from work to taxing their kids from one event to another, to various chores around the home, to the countless other time-consuming activities that occupy their ever-diminishing waking hours. Scores of American men have long complained that because of all the demands at work and the fulfillment of other duties, they have less and less time to do the things that are really fulfilling. Even many teens and young kids today have to keep a detailed calendar, Because with lessons, sports, homework, and even play dates, their schedule has become overwhelming. To all of us in this frenetic era, who feel drawn and quartered by seemingly having to do so many things well at the same time, Jesus, with words shocking to our 21st century sensibility, presents us today a summary of the good news. He who came to set the captives free, who is truth incarnate, who knows everything and can't lie, tells us in one sentence what he told St. Martha, the secret to our liberation. You are worried and distracted by many things. Only one thing is necessary. Jesus wants to help us to understand what that one thing is, to ask what our true priority in life is right now and what should be that priority. We know that Jesus went to the house of Martha and Mary not principally to be fed, he went there principally to feed, and it was only Mary who sat at his feet, making him the one thing necessary, who grasped this. Martha, for all her effort to welcome God incarnate with an extraordinary attention to detail, she just didn't grasp this. And that's why when she came to plead to the Lord Lord don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself tell her to help me Jesus rather than doing that said to her gently Martha you're worried and distracted by many things there's need of only one thing Mary has chosen the better part and won't be taken away from her what Jesus wasn't saying was that her efforts were somehow evil or unappreciated Shortly before he entered their home, he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan about the one who crossed the road to care for somebody who was in need. He himself washed the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper and told them to do the same. He wasn't castigating her for a loving service. What he was saying to her, however, was that none of those efforts, strictly speaking, was essential, that there was no reason to get worked up about them because there was something more important, something Mary realized and that Martha as yet hadn't. So what are some practical takeaways that we can have from this consequential conversation with Jesus? The first is our hospitality toward him. Do we truly welcome Jesus into our life and sit at his feet in prayer? The second is about imitating Mary in choosing the better part and truly allowing Jesus to feed us as he desires. It's not enough for us to know what our priority should be. We also have to choose it. One of the m- biggest problems today, I think, is what I call that Jesus is an important part of my life syndrome, where we give him a small part of our life, but he's not really the center of it. This Sunday, one of the takeaways should be to really make him our priority. The last application is to Martha. We're all going to be hard workers. Hopefully we're working for Jesus, but we have to do that activity together with Jesus, listening to him as we're working hard, bringing him, for example, into the kitchen if we need to do the work or into the workplace or into our classroom. Today, as we prepare for Sunday's Gospel, Jesus wants us to get ready to have a conversation with him that won't hit dead soil, but in fact, bear much fruit in allowing us to live with new priorities so that we might follow Mary and her converted sister Martha all the way to Jesus' right side.
0: Thank you so much, Father Landry, for joining us again as you do each week with your homily, your three-minute homily, to prepare us for our Sunday Gospel this week. It's a great treat, and our listeners can have that same treat every day at catholicpreaching.com. You can listen to it, and you can also read it on Father Landry's website. So thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, This is Dr. Gracie Christie. This is Conversations with Consequences of the Catholic Association. And I was joined by my colleague, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, and by our dear friend, Mary Fiorito. It was a great show. We hope you enjoyed it. Please join us next week. You can subscribe to our podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. Thank you.